Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hi, everyone. I'm Elaine Kihano. It's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of Red and Blue Countdown to the Vote. We are now counting down from 100 days until the election. The weeks and months leading up to this have significantly shifted the political landscape. With over 4 million documented cases and nearly 150,000 deaths from COVID-19, the pandemic continues to strain the nation's health care system and batter the U.S. economy. Compounding those issues are the millions of Americans who find themselves out of work. But it's not just the coronavirus plaguing the country in recent months. There is a growing public outcry denouncing systemic racism and police brutality against minority communities. As for the outcome, the president not only refuses to say he will acknowledge the results of the election, but is going back to a false claim he pushed before and after the 2016 election, that there is inherent fraud in the American electoral system. Joe Biden continues to warn of potential foreign interference. And that's where we find ourselves just under 100 days out from the election. Ed O'Keefe, Caitlin Huey Burns and Eugene Scott join me now. Ed is a CBS News political correspondent. Caitlin is a CBSN political reporter. And Eugene is a politics reporter with The Washington Post. Great to see you all. Ed, let's start with you. The president has pretty much governed these last four years by mobilizing and energizing a group that he calls the silent majority. Is it clear, Ed, whether those voters are enough to put him over the top in 2020? Well, if you look at our most recent battleground tracker surveys, Elaine, absolutely not. Uh, he is now underwater in Michigan. He's leading uh, Joe Biden by just one point in Ohio. Previous surveys we did from Arizona and Texas show it's a tight race, and he's losing to Biden in the state of Florida. So while he may be trying to recreate the almost paper-thin coalition that got him just across the line in several of those Midwestern states that helped him win the White House. He's not currently doing well enough in those states right now uh, to be at least comfortable with his position. And you would think would be trying to find a way to expand his support, especially in those critical states. But uh, as poll after poll after poll, and I know we can only put so much uh, trust and faith in, in surveys that are done in the summer before an election, they continue to show that he is struggling to win over the support of independents, potential Democrats that would see reason to vote for him, uh, and even some Republicans now who are very concerned about the state of the economy and the way he's been managing the pandemic. 
So, Caitlin, against that backdrop, Joe Biden has started sharpening his criticisms of the president, recently calling Mr. Trump a racist. Other than painting himself as the anti-Trump candidate, what is the former vice president bringing to the table in terms of policy? Well, Lane, over the past few weeks, Joe Biden has gone to uh, places in Phil near Philadelphia and around his home state of Delaware to talk about his economic policies against the backdrop of uh, the pandemic and the economic fallout from the pandemic. And he's really tried to shape those policies around racial inequality, which he'll speak about in Delaware tomorrow. Uh, last week, he was talking about the impact of uh, the economy as it relates to child care and caregiving and ca caring for the elderly. Elderly. So he's really trying to focus an economic pitch. And that comes as we see in our battleground tracker polls in Michigan and Ohio, as well as a couple of weeks ago in Arizona, Florida, uh, and Texas, states that were very hard hit by the pandemic, that Biden's support is being fueled by uh, voters who say they're supporting him out of opposition to Donald Trump and not necessarily because they support Joe Biden, the person. So while there are openings, certainly for for Joe Biden uh, to make, as he has continued in polls, headway against Donald Trump, we are seeing that his support is more so geared towards opposition to Trump than support for Joe Biden. So that suggests that he has some work to do in terms of laying out his policy vision. Now, we could see that that may just be enough to be the anti-Trump candidate, but the moves from the Biden campaign suggest that they might have to do a little bit more, and that's why we're seeing these policy rollouts from the former vice president. Well, Eugene, as we mentioned, the country is going through unprecedented times with the coronavirus and grappling with systemic racism. You recently wrote, President Trump may not be as in line with his base on cultural issues he believes as he believes. On what issues, Eugene, do you think the Trump base has shifted somewhat? Well, President Trump has been very critical of the Black Lives Matter movement and has been since before he got to the Oval Office. He really criticized activists who uh, demonstrated against anti-black racism while on the campaign in 2016. But recent polling from The Washington Post shows that many Americans, including some of those from the demographic groups that the president uh, considers to be his base, uh, actually have favorable views of the Black Lives Matter movement or at least of the protesters who are demonstrating against uh, police violence against black people. And so when the president criticizes, uh, you know, these individuals and tries to associate them with Antifa, he seems not to realize uh, that many of the people out there are often uh, white women, are suburban voters, are independents, um, are sometimes evangelicals, and even Republicans. These are groups that President Trump uh, won and performed well with in 2016 uh, that aren't looking at him as favorably now as they did prior to this moment. Well, Ed, a recent AP slash NORC survey shows eight in 10 Americans think the country is headed in the wrong direction. What challenges or opportunities does that present for both campaigns? Well, for, for the Biden campaign, certainly it, it helps fuel their argument that things are not going well and that uh, the president needs to be replaced with Joe Biden. And, you know, you're seeing that in almost every single public statement Biden makes. You're seeing it now in his advertising and the way it's focused almost completely now on the pandemic and the way that the Trump administration has completely, in their view, dropped the ball. Uh, for the president, uh, obviously, yes, he would have to find a way 
to somehow turn things around. That is why we saw last week three different news conferences with just him trying to express some concern, some understanding of the situation, urging Americans to wear masks. That's why we're seeing senior administration officials finally start to wear them when they're in public and encourage people to do so. They now understand after several weeks of declining numbers and a shakeup in the campaign that they've got to come up with a way to better demonstrate that the president has a handle on this. But the question, I suppose, will remain, how long can the president stick to that? We know he has a tendency to sort of change course, seem to be on a way towards you know, changing his tone or changing his focus, changing his understanding of an issue, and then suddenly something happens that brings him back to where he's been before. And, the, and if that continues through August into September, it's going to be really tricky for him uh, to somehow win back supporters that may have drifted away or try to convince somebody who may be looking for a reason to vote for him. I was struck, Elaine, in our polling over the weekend that showed that the majority of people who say they will vote for Joe Biden are doing so because it's a vote against the president, not an affirmative vote for Biden. And so you would think the president might be trying to find a way to convince some of those people to change their minds again. It hasn't happened. And Biden, of course, continues to try to win over supporters and try to make people vote for him by focusing, especially in the past month, on the issue of the economy, which has remained the one issue that the president beats Biden on in terms of which one voters think an issue that voters think either of them has a better handle on. Caitlin, I want to ask about health care. Donald Trump campaigned to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. In 2017, he told The Washington Post, quote, we are going to have insurance for everybody, end quote. Now, the White House has tried and failed to get rid of President Obama's signature health care policy. How important was health care to the midterm elections, and how much do you see it factoring into 2020? Well, Lane, health care policy is very, very complicated, but the politics surrounding health care is pretty simple. Anytime you try to make changes to the healthcare system, voters tend to react very negatively. We saw that in 2010 after Democrats passed uh, the Affordable Care Act. They saw uh, that voters responded negatively in the polls that gave Republicans uh, in got Republicans uh, to be in charge of the House. Uh, a decade later, you saw in 2018 a very negative reaction to Republicans trying to repeal uh, Obamacare, which has now become popular over the years, especially uh, certain elements like allowing you to stay on your parents' insurance, uh, coverage for pre-existing conditions. The attempts to repeal that without a sound replacement plan uh, really had voters reacting neg negatively towards Republicans and uh, positively towards Democrats. And so we, you're kind of seeing that angle now, but the really important component now, of course, is the pandemic. Trying to uh, make any changes to health care while voters are in the midst of a pandemic, trying to figure out how to get through it, uh, that puts forward another layer of uncertainty for voters that you can anticipate they re would react to negatively. We see time and time again that healthcare remains a top concern because it's a concern that crosses a variety of different planes. It involves your economics, it involves your family, uh, and, and your healthcare decisions. Right, and for so many families and individuals, it feels like such an urgent situation, given the fact that we are in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, so meantime, Eugene, we are still waiting for Joe Biden to select his running mate. The former VP has promised he will choose a woman and confirmed that four black women are on his shortlist. How much, Eugene, is at stake with this pick? 
Well, I think uh, what the Biden team realizes is that while they do have the support of most black Americans, they should not take that for granted. And I think that is something uh, the Democratic Party may have learned uh, from the 2016 presidential election. Uh, there was some criticism towards Hillary Clinton uh, about Tim Kaine, uh, choosing Tim Kaine as her running mate, because there were voters who were hoping that she would use this moment to perhaps pick a Latino uh, lawmaker or maybe even a, a, another person, an African-American person. Um, and she did not go in that direction, um, not thinking perhaps that she needed to win over those voters, but wanted to win white men and maybe was hoping that Tim Kaine would help her with that. And ultimately, they won Virginia, where Tim Kaine uh, serves as a lawmaker, but Hillary Clinton did lose white men to Donald Trump. Uh, the Biden campaign is hoping not to make that same mistake. Uh, there have been voters who were very vocal uh, and during the primary election, specifically black women, who really wanted to support uh, Kamala Harris moving forward uh, in her uh, you know, endeavors to be president, but did not think that she was ready and, more importantly, perhaps, did not think she could ultimately beat uh, President Trump in a general election bid. And so they're hoping that they will have the opportunity uh, to support their first choice, Joe Biden, and someone who they thought uh, would reflect their values and worldview and interests, but also uh, who would make history. And by sending a woman um, to uh, Washington as the second person in charge, um, and, and more specifically, a black woman. And Ed, you have been in touch with the Biden campaign about what we should expect on this final sprint. What can you tell us? Well, there, there is obviously the issue of who his partner would be, uh, and, and that remains a, a big concern and obsession of the campaign right now. We know they're preparing for that. Uh, you, we have seen this focus in the last few weeks, and we'll probably continue to see it for a little while longer on the economy, because again, uh, it's been nagging at the Biden team that the only issue they haven't been able to top the president on in polling is which candidate is better equipped to deal with the economic recovery. They believe they're going to see in the coming weeks a, a change and a shift in that regard and that Biden might be able to surpass the president on that question. If that happens, you know, we'll, we'll see what else they move on to. But it's pretty clear that the mission every time Joe Biden goes out these days is sort of subject, verb, pandemic and Trump, and just reminding voters that the president is not doing a good job of that. Secondarily, find ways to do or say things that show up the, the left flank of the Democratic Party and keep them inspired and motivated to vote, and then win over those remaining independent voters out there, or perhaps disaffected Republicans that they, I think uh, Pete Buttigieg used to call them future former Republicans, uh, that the Democrats right. would like to win over in a lot of these key battleground states in order to win back the White House. They have their work cut out for them. Uh, and, you know, as with everything, I I've been reflecting on this the last few days as we hit the 100-day mark. Remember, it was only about 100 days ago Bernie Sanders was getting out of the election. And at the time, you know, right. the president was still in a pretty good position against whoever the Democratic nominee would be. 100 days later, of course, things have changed dramatically. And with 99 to go, they could change it again. Absolutely. Ed O'Keefe, Caitlin Huey Burns, and Eugene Scott. Just 99 short, or I suppose long, depending on your perspective, days left. Thank you all very much. Take care. President Trump started campaigning for re-election almost immediately after his inauguration in 2017. Some of his rallies since then have featured signs saying, promises made, promises kept. Here are just some of the major promises he has made over the years. It is time to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. 
We're going to cancel the Paris Climate Agreement. We will immediately begin renegotiating NAFTA. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We will cancel all federal funding to sanctuary cities. We will stop illegal immigration, deport criminal aliens, and dismantle every last criminal cartel that's in this country. I'm looking for judges, and I've actually picked 20 of them, people that will respect the Constitution of the United States. And by the way, you know I'm building the wall, we're finishing the wall, we got a lot of money. CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett joins me now. Hi there, Major. As our CBSN viewers well know, you have covered the president since that trip down the escalator at Trump Tower when he announced his candidacy. What were some of the themes that he campaigned on, and are there differences between candidate Trump and incumbent President Trump? Well, there are a lot of differences, of course. And in 2015 and 2016, Donald Trump campaigned as a novelty. And the novelty was not taken seriously by many of his adversaries early on. That proved Elaine to be an enormous advantage for the Trump campaign. And it's one I've come to believe that Donald Trump understood better than any of his rivals. I've said on this program many times, and it's fundamentally true. By the time the Republican establishment, the Republican challengers to Donald Trump understood how serious it was, it was too late. And he knew that. So that is an enormous advantage that you cannot replicate as an incumbent. Plus, as Tim Alberta, a colleague of ours in journalism, who's written in his excellent book, American Carnage, there was within the Republican Party from about 2006 until the time of the Trump candidacy, this roiling conversation going on about what the party stood for, what it represented, and did the Republicans in Washington at the establishment level actually have anything to do with knowing what actual grassroots Republican voters most wanted? And that book argues, and the Donald Trump campaign proves, that the Republican establishment was out of touch with Republican primary voters because Donald Trump gave them an unabashed, unadorned, America-first agenda, harsh, harsh on immigration, much more harsh than any of his Republican rivals, Harsh on regulations, get rid of that. That's sort of doctrinaire Republican stuff, but Trump was intending and promising to carry it much farther, spend much more on the military. That's a little Reagan-esque, but Trump was, again, much more aggressive on that, much more flagrant and passionate and verbal about a certain kind of American patriotism, deeply skeptical, if not outright hostile to free trade without proper reciprocal actions by other nations, as he often said, and fundamentally at odds with everything, nearly everything, of the Obama foreign policy of the last eight years. Plus, there was also as many Republicans who watched at first in horror and then in resignation, there was a great uplifted, forgive me, but this is true, middle finger from the Trump campaign and all of its supporters to politics as it was understood and practiced before that campaign came along. All of that gave the Trump campaign, not only novelty, a certain kind of odd and repetitive resonance, but as the Trump campaign began to collect victories, 
a kind of momentum that proved unstoppable. And it's a momentum that carried into the general election. All the things I talked about were even more visible, even more a potent part of the national conversation. And then, quite to the surprise of many, including Republicans, including some in the Trump campaign, he wins. What is the practical effect of that? It has a mesmerizing, almost hypnotizing effect on fellow Republicans. And they basically say, this guy is on to something and we better follow. We've seen that throughout his presidency, by and large. So that is a fundamental difference. And you can't replicate that as an incumbent. Now, what you can do as an incumbent is run on your record. And until the pandemic, Donald Trump was aggressively, proudly running on that uh, output as president. Promises made, promises kept. In many of the clips you just ran, Elaine, the president has lived up to those pledges, if not absolutely, certainly in intention, and in many cases, results. Then coronavirus comes along, and that upends not only politics, but it upends his administration. And now he cannot, or in most cases, cannot run against the opponent he wants to run against, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden. He's running against the pandemic. And all the polling, public and internal within the Trump campaign and the RNC, indicate he's losing to the pandemic. And that is the fundamental difference, not only of Trump writ large, but this campaign. And until the president gets on top of the pandemic, both as a matter of policy and as a matter of politics, he is running as a decided underdog as an incumbent president. So, Major, in our final 30 seconds, knowing the president's instincts as you do, as someone who has studied him, what do you expect, given all of that that you laid out and the pandemic, what do you expect to see from the president and his campaign in these final months? He's a bit trapped because the president loves to fight and loves to fight on behalf of his supporters. That's why he was skeptical of wearing masks and saying we can open up rapidly and we can beat this virus. And the virus has answered back. And unfortunately for the president, now he's backpedaling in so many ways that he wasn't just a month ago. And his heartiest supporters are confused by that, possibly for the very first time. And that creates a gap with them, also possibly for the first time. Is it enough to get back estranged Republicans and swing voters and independents? Possibly not. But if it also creates any level of estrangement with the hardcore Trump supporters, then the president's in even a worse fix than I originally described. All right, Major Garrett, always great to have your insight. Thank you very much. Sure. Coming up after the break, a new CBS News Battleground tracker poll shows Joe Biden gaining in two key states. President Trump flipped in 2016. Stay with us. You're streaming Red and Blue. Countdown to the vote. Go to the ends of the earth. Right now. We got something crazy. Ah, boom. And reach for the stars. There we are. <laughs> Tom. Yes, it's my comeback. <laughs> hey, this is pretty fun. But wait, there's more. Experience thought-provoking. Welcome to the idea of being a human being. Innovative. Da, 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 da. And truly original reporting. Look through a telescope and go, wow. Because there's always something new under the sun on CBS Sunday Morning. COVID has taken the lives of tens of thousands of Americans. Rural areas like this here on Navajo Nation are especially hit hard. 
15 to 30 percent of our Navajo citizens don't have running water. In any indigenous reservation, there is a shortage of physicians. Native Americans are amongst the most vulnerable and hardest hit by COVID. Yeah, the more we lose our elders to COVID-19, the more we lose our language and our way of life. We need to bring awareness to the attention of Washington, D.C. and United States citizens that there is a need to focus on the first citizens of this country. In 60 years, we went from about 100,000 factory workers to probably about 7,000. Off in the distance, you can see some factories that are still humming, but most of them are just kind of abandoned. The restaurant industry right now is one of the largest and fastest growing industries in America. And yet it continues to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. Barely anybody's making enough to live. You're donating plasma to get by. Uh -huh. It's literally a slave wage. I don't remember growing up like this. My mom didn't have to go to food banks. It's pretty sad. Even really young kids are feeling what's going on right now. How should parents be talking to them about this whole question of racial justice? How do we embrace this moment and turn it into real change? What we really must focus on is moving from protesting to policy. Join Gail, Anthony, and Tony on CBS This Morning. CBSN Los Angeles. Get local news, breaking news, anytime, anywhere. It's easy to find us, and it's free. Download the CBS News app on your favorite devices. CBSN Los Angeles, streaming 24-7. You can watch CBSN 24-7. I've got an amazing story to share with you. I understand you have some breaking news. How does it all play out? It's quite an adventure here at CBSN. It's been a day. We've just passed the 100-day mark until the presidential election. We're taking a closer look at some of the battleground states which helped to determine the presidency in 2016 and how they've changed since then. Our latest CBS News battleground tracker shows Joe Biden leading in Michigan by six points. President Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic appears to be weighing his poll numbers down. Our estimates show the president with a slight one-point edge in Ohio, a state critical for a 2020 electoral win. Ohio is a state the president won with a comfortable margin in 2016. CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys Anthony Salvanto joins us now. Anthony, good to see you. Let's talk about Michigan, first of all, where our CBS News battleground tracker estimates Joe Biden is leading by six points. How is the coronavirus in the state impacting polls there? Uh, hi, Elaine, is exactly what you alluded to in your intro. We asked people, did the president's response to the coronavirus, when Michigan was being so hard hit by it this spring, did that help the state or hurt the state or was it even neutral? And more people said that it hurt the state. And then you look and you see how closely correlated views on the coronavirus and his handling of it are with vote, and you can see that it's clearly weighing down on his poll numbers there, Elaine. Well, let's move now to Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. The CBS News battleground tracker currently shows both those states as a toss-up. What are the issues in play there? So 
you want to look at the map in some ways as the older or traditional battlegrounds, the upper Midwest. You talk about Pennsylvania, you talk about Michigan, we just mentioned, Ohio, and certainly Wisconsin, which you just noted. All of those have been in play for many elections, and the president flipped them all from Democrats, in some cases by very close margins, notably Michigan, notably Wisconsin last time. Well, then you look at a difference between their composition and what you might call the newer battlegrounds emerging more this year. That's in the Sun Belt. You're talking your Arizona, your Texas, your Georgia, and then, of course, perennially or quadrennially, I should say, Florida. Well, there's a difference in that those upper Midwestern states, their electoral composition, for one thing, it has more white voters. And Donald Trump has won the white vote by substantial margins in recent elections, very specifically white working class voters, white non-college degree holding voters. Well, across all of those states right now, and the reason, one big reason that they're in play is that Joe Biden has sliced, in some cases, about 10 points off the president's margins with them. For example, we were talking about Michigan. The president won them. We had 62% last time. He's at like 52% now, at least in the polling. But the point is that Joe Biden, Joe Biden is making some inroads with those groups that the president flipped last time that enabled him to flip a lot of those states uh, in 2016. And that's why they're then competitive once again, Elaine. And Anthony, President Trump was trailing in a number of polls in 2016, right up until election night. Remind us what has changed in methodology between then and now. Okay, so for example, since we were talking about Pennsylvania, right, late deciders in Pennsylvania, people who made up their minds at the last minute, 15% of the electorate, and they went for Donald Trump by double digits, right, like 54%. So what, they, what that is, is a reminder to everybody that these are campaigns and people change their minds. You should never look at a poll and think, okay, that's it, it's set in stone. These are dynamic things. But, and that's a communications, that's a communications issue, right? That's about all of us telling and saying that the polls are about people and people change their minds. But the other part of methodology is this. Starting in 2018 and continuing now, what we've been doing is taking a more comprehensive look at the whole of the electorate in all 50 states. And that's one of the things that drives the battleground tracker now. Now, our CBSN audience is, I know we're tech savvy as you're watching this, so I can get <laughs> a little wonky here. What we do, okay, what we do is we interview massive numbers of people throughout all the states, but then we also look at the voter files, millions of voter files, public voter files in all of these states, and we know exactly how many voters are registered there and what the composition of the electorate is. And we combine that data, all of those interviews, with that voter file data, as well as people's vote history for whether or not they're really likely to turn out. And it's that combination model that drives the battleground tracker. And the other thing about it is, in 2016, a lot of people said, well, look, we're, there's lots of polling in places like Florida and like Ohio where white working class voters are moving towards Donald Trump. We wonder if the same thing is happening in Wisconsin or in Pennsylvania, but maybe there wasn't enough polling to find out. Well, the answer for, for polling sometimes is to do more polling. And so we are doing polling in all of those states. And what we do with our models is combine all that information so that if you see a particular type of voter group moving towards a candidate, moving towards Biden, moving towards Trump, in a whole bunch of states, it's very reasonable to assume or at least go look and see if they're moving to him or her in 
all the other states. And that's what the Battleground Tracker does as well. So it combines and it uses more information and it uses models in order to put together that composite piece of the electorate. All right, Anthony Salvanto, we always appreciate your wonkiness. Helps us to better understand that political <laughs> landscape. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. The president toured a biotech company working on a coronavirus vaccine in North Carolina this afternoon. He also held a coronavirus briefing there. Vice President Mike Pence also traveled to the battleground state of Florida today. He went to Miami to participate in a roundtable with Governor Ron DeSantis as researchers enter phase three testing on a coronavirus vaccine. Leslie Sanchez and Linda Tran join me now. Leslie is a CBS News political analyst and Republican strategist, and Linda is a CBSN political contributor and Democratic strategist. Welcome, Leslie and Linda. So wonderful to see you both. Linda, let me start with you. This has been an unprecedented election cycle for many reasons. How much do you think the response to the coronavirus pandemic is going to influence voters? Well, Elaine, there's no question that voters are worried about what's next when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. There's not a day that goes by when we're not seeing numbers go up. And, and in recent weeks, as you know, the numbers have reached somewhat of a high and stayed there. So you would fully expect that as people are thinking about who they want to lead this country moving forward, coronavirus will be top of mind. Not unrelated, of course, is the economic pain that millions of Americans around the country are continuing to face as a result of the fallout from the pandemic. And poll after poll show that these are issues that are certainly going to factor into their decisions as they head to the ballot box or put their ballot in the mailbox this fall. So given all that, Leslie, at this point, what is the messaging from the Trump campaign? What is the pitch to voters? And are there any signs that it's working? The biggest pitch, Elaine, is going to be the pitch the president has continued to make even before the coronavirus pandemic, and that is the economy. He's going to say that despite the economic downturn and the turn of events that he's had around the world, that the, the U.S. economy is strong. It's moving forward. You're seeing the markets uh, it, it, you know, stay resilient despite the fact it's been an extremely difficult time, very much what Linda's talking about, um, personally in people's pocketbooks. And, and that's really going to be the question. If in these battleground states, people have confidence the president is doing the best he can, despite his leadership style and the numerous uh, gaps and hand-wringing that Republicans have about him and his leadership, if the economy is continuing to upswing, that's really where I, I think the dividing line is going to be on whether or not they stick with the Republican Party or look at a one candidate split ticket situation of a, a Biden at the top or not voting at all. Interesting. Well, Linda, on some issues, especially racial equality, polls show that the country has shifted to a more progressive point since 2016. With just 99 days until the election, has Joe Biden himself made that transition? Well, you know, what's interesting, Elaine, is that many would say Joe Biden had been making the transition to a much more progressive stance for many years now, certainly being part of the Obama administration and championing many policies, including the expansion to health care for millions of Americans who now, of course, depend on it more than ever. And many, many other issues, not the least of which was uh, gay marriage years ago. He's certainly been on this trajectory towards a more progressive vision of the world. And that's very much in line 
with where the country is moving. Uh, most recently, we also saw him uh, commit to a lot of money, tons of money towards addressing climate change in a way that one might not have expected before the 2020 cycle. So clearly, he's moving in the direction that the country is, and he's committed to issues that are going to be top of mind for people, not only at the ballot box this November, but for the many years to come. Leslie, I also want to ask about the Senate this fall. Do Democrats have any chance to win back control of the Senate? Democrats are in a very good position. They're certainly within striking distance uh, for many more uh, vulnerable Republicans. A lot of that has to do with the president does not have any coattails. You would think uh, that, yes, this is a referendum on the president, but you're seeing a, a, a punitive response by many swing voters all the way down ballot, Elaine. And you heard, um, you know, our, some of our own CBS analysis, polling analysis, talking about these traditional suburban swing voters who are really on the fence in terms of what they're looking at. They may take a significant look. They voted for Trump um, in 2016. They may take a significant look at um, a, a Democrat at the top of the ticket and may even vote straight ticket. There's a lot of movement among these swing voters, and, and that does jeopardize the Republican Senate. All right, Election Day just around the corner. Leslie Sanchez and Linda Tran, thank you both very much. <laughs> the presidential campaign looks a lot different now than it did at the beginning of the year. We asked CBS News campaign reporters Bo Erickson and Nicole Skanga what that change has been like. Temperature checks are mandatory upon entering campaign rallies. Volunteers must wear masks while registering voters ahead of November. And almost all campaign events have shifted online. The coronavirus pandemic has transformed the president's re-election bid and its signature rallies. Ahead of his first rally since COVID-19 hit the United States, top campaign officials from the Trump campaign boasted nearly one million RSVPs for an event in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but just around 6,200 showed up. And on the ground in Tulsa, Trump supporters I spoke with expressed concerns about possible COVID-19 community spread upon entering the arena and donned homemade masks. At least eight advanced staffers setting up for the rally tested positive for the coronavirus, causing Trump campaign officials to mandate quarantine and testing for Trump staff returning to headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. Since that June 20th rally, the president has traveled in his official capacity to Arizona, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Florida, Georgia, and today, North Carolina. But there have been zero campaign rallies. A rally slated to take place on July 11th in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, was scrapped at the last minute. So were festivities surrounding the GOP convention next month in Jacksonville, Florida. To fill that void, President Trump hosted four tele-rallies over the phone last week, and his campaign continues to host daily Team Trump online virtual events, boasting millions of views. But the booming arenas we've long associated with the president and his campaign are gone for now. My colleague Bo Erickson is covering the Biden campaign. Bo? 
Thanks, Nicole. Covering Joe Biden's campaign during the pandemic has mostly been a virtual assignment because his campaign has built their own television studio inside his Delaware home to broadcast out his message. But in the past couple weeks, Biden has started to make more in-person stops on the campaign trail. Since the pandemic started, he has made at least 12 physical stops, some more personal, like meeting with George Floyd's family in Texas, and others more political, like delivering remarks on the economy and coronavirus. One aspect of his campaign that has not slowed down during the pandemic is fundraising. In the past 136 days, Biden has held at least 62 virtual fundraisers, where Biden gathers virtually with high-dollar donors, giving them special access to his campaign. All of these virtual fundraisers has contributed about $250 million cash on hand in the middle of July, according to Biden's campaign manager. As we enter August here, we are watching for Biden to pick his own Biden, his running mate, a process that is going through the vetting right now, going through documents and soon to be interviews. And it has been even more private for Biden to do due to social distancing. On the Biden Beat for CBSN, I'm Bo Erickson, CBS News. Coming up, Election Day is less than 100 days away, but voting actually starts much earlier in many states. We'll take a look at what voting may look like this year and potential problems at the polls when we come back. You're streaming Red and Blue. Go to the ends of the earth. Right now. We got something crazy. Ah, boom. And reach for the stars. Here we are. <laughs> Tom. Yes, it's my comeback. <laughs> hey, this is pretty fun. But wait, there's more. Experience thought-provoking. Welcome to the idea of being a human being. Innovative. Da, 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 da. And truly original recording. Look through a telescope and go, wow. Because there's always something new under the sun on CBS Sunday Morning. COVID has taken the lives of tens of thousands of Americans. Rural areas like this here on Navajo Nation are especially hit hard. 15 to 30% of our Navajo citizens don't have running water. In any indigenous reservation, there is a shortage of physicians. Native Americans are amongst the most vulnerable and hardest hit by COVID. Yeah, the more we lose our elders to COVID-19, the more we lose our language and our way of life. We need to bring awareness to the attention of Washington, D.C. and United States citizens that there is a need to focus on the first citizens of this country. In 60 years, we went from about 100,000 factory workers to probably about 7,000. Off in the distance, you can see some factories that are still humming, but most of them are just kind of abandoned. The restaurant industry right now is one of the largest and fastest growing industries in America. And yet it continues to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. Barely anybody's making enough to live. You're donating plasma to get by. Uh -huh. It's literally a slave wage. I don't remember growing up like this. My mom didn't have to go to food banks. It's pretty sad. 
even really young kids are feeling what's going on right now. How should parents be talking to them about this whole question of racial justice? How do we embrace this moment and turn it into real change? What we really must focus on is moving from protesting to policy. Join Gail, Anthony, and Tony on CBS This Morning. CBSN Los Angeles. Get local news, breaking news, anytime, anywhere. It's easy to find us, and it's free. Download the CBS News app on your favorite devices. CBSN Los Angeles, streaming 24-7. You can watch CBSN 24-7. I've got an amazing story to share with you. I understand you have some breaking news. How does it all play out? It's quite an adventure here at CBSN. It's been a day. The CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell on CBS. There are many questions surrounding what voting will look like this fall amid the coronavirus pandemic. A record number of Americans are expected to vote by mail in November. Many states have moved to expand mail-in voting to address voters' concerns about voting safely in a pandemic. Yet the president and his allies continue to argue without evidence that could lead to what he calls a rigged election. Joining me is Lawrence Norton. He is the director of the Election Reform Program at the Brennan Center for Justice and CBSN legal contributor Keir Dougal. Welcome to you both. Lawrence, does voting by mail actually increase the risk of voter fraud? And how are election officials addressing any potential security gaps? First thing that's important for folks to know is that we've had mail voting in the United States since the Civil War. Uh, it's very well tested. Um, the troops were uh, allowed to vote by mail um, during the Civil War. We've done it in every federal election since then. Uh, and about in the last couple of federal elections, about 25 percent of Americans in each federal election has decided to uh, choose the option to uh, vote by mail. And it is extremely secure. Uh, fraud is exceptionally rare. Uh, it, it's more common for somebody to get struck by lightning than um, to commit voter fraud by mail. And um, when it does, on the rare occasions when it does happen, uh, it's caught. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very good security process uh, that's in place with vote by mail because we've been doing it for so long. And Keir, there's not one standard here. A number of legal fights have erupted over mail-in ballots and absentee voting and how rules vary by state. Could the different state rules lead to confusion among voters and election poll workers? It's possible, but there's a lot of information out there that voters can get. If uh, they're concerned about particular state rules, you should check. Some states allow uh, no excuse mail-in balloting. Um, some states require an excuse. Um, there has been, or and there currently is, some litigation over whether or not, for instance, if you need an excuse in a state, um, whether that's, that excuse can be expanded to cover our coronavirus pandemic that's currently uh, going on. But I agree with Lawrence that the uh, long history of mail-in voting in our country uh, should provide a lot of confidence and security, uh, at least in the minds of voters. 
At the same time, Lawrence, a new Wall Street Journal report finds election officials are still vulnerable to email attacks, including six jurisdictions, which are using a software linked to Russian cyber attacks in 2016. Why have these systems not been updated? And has the pandemic left us more vulnerable to foreign interference? Yeah, look, I, I, one thing that's um, very difficult about uh, elections in the United States is that it's, they really are decentralized. Um, so you, ha you have literally close to 10,000 separate election jurisdictions in the United States, and um, there are going to be gaps. Uh, and it's unfortunate that um, some election officials uh, in, around the country are using um, email services that are probably not as secure as they should be. Uh, and there's no question that um, because there's been so much focus on addressing COVID, um, that there's probably been less focus in the last few months on election security than there should be. Uh, but I, I think something that's important for folks to know is um, that the things that have been identified in the Wall Street Journal, um, the, the kinds of cyber attacks um, that that are legitimate concerns um, to, to be worried about in terms of what might happen against election. There are procedures that can be put in place still. There's plenty of time uh, to ensure that even if there is a cyber attack against our election systems, um, that they will be resilient, that people will still be able to vote, and that we'll be able to count those votes. Still, Lawrence, could that undermine confidence in the results on election night? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's why it's so important for election officials to be communicating to the public uh, what security measures they have in place, uh, that if systems go down, that people will still be able to vote, that there'll be paper ballots that will be available for them to fill them out, um, that um, there are backup plans in place, um, and to be as transparent as possible in, in the process. And um, there's no question that since 2016, um, the United States has improved in terms of election security. Uh, we have far fewer of the kind of paperless systems that election security uh, experts have uh, warned about. The Department of Homeland Security has been giving a lot of extra assistance um, to election jurisdictions, and there's been just um, a ton more uh, training and best practices around election security in the United States than we saw just a few years ago. And Keir, President Trump refuses to say if he would accept the election results. What would happen if he loses but does not concede? Well, uh, he's not required to concede. The Constitution has a four-year term specified in the clear text of the Constitution. If uh, at the end of his term on January 20th, if for uh, some reason uh, all of our fears are confirmed and there are still disputes over the election, uh, the 20th Amendment of the Constitution uh, would uh, take us into the order of succession assuming the vice president and the president, uh, presidency have not been determined, you'd follow that order of succession to the Speaker of the House or the uh, president pro tempore of the Senate. So there are procedures in place that would allow uh, for uh, the transition of power, even if there was a contested or an indeterminate election. All right, Lawrence Norton and Keir Dugo, really grateful for your insight on this. Thank you both very much. Thanks so much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk to the co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund about voting rights and remembering Congressman John Lewis. Stay with us. You're streaming Red and Blue, Countdown to the Vote.
COVID has taken the lives of tens of thousands of Americans. Rural areas like this here on Navajo Nation are especially hit hard. 15 to 30 percent of our Navajo citizens don't have running water. In any indigenous reservation, there is a shortage of physicians. Native Americans are amongst the most vulnerable and hardest hit by COVID. Yeah, the more we lose our elders to COVID-19, the more we lose our language and our way of life. We need to bring awareness to the attention of Washington, D.C. and United States citizens that there is a need to focus on the first citizens of this country. CBSN Los Angeles. Get local news, breaking news, anytime, anywhere. It's easy to find us, and it's free. Download the CBS News app on your favorite devices. CBSN Los Angeles, streaming 24-7. CBSN Pittsburgh, your neighborhood news, streaming 24-7. Anytime, anywhere. Find it on KDKA.com and on all your favorite devices. In 60 years, we went from about 100,000 factory workers to probably about 7,000. Off in the distance, you can see some factories that are still humming, but most of them are just kind of abandoned. The restaurant industry right now is one of the largest and fastest growing industries in America. And yet it continues to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. Barely anybody's making enough to live. You're donating plasma to get by. Uh -huh. It's literally a slave wage. I don't remember growing up like this. My mom didn't have to go to food banks. It's pretty sad. The Voting Rights Act, passed in 1965, was meant to prohibit racial discrimination in voting. Yet many minority voters argue systemic racism still plagues the United States electoral process. The late Congressman John Lewis was one of the critical leaders of that fight, alongside the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Black Voters Matter Fund aims to continue Lewis's legacy to ensure minorities' freedom to vote without issue. Latasha Brown joins me now. She is the co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. She attended the vigil for John Lewis in Alabama over the weekend. Latasha, thanks for being with us again on Red and Blue. First, for people who are not familiar with your group, what exactly is the Black Voters Matter Fund and what led to its founding? So we are a power building organization. We were founded in 2016. Cliff Albright and I, the other co-founder, had been doing work for a number of years in Alabama. I'm a native of Alabama, from Selma, Alabama. And in the same spirit of, of, of John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, of the work that they did in the voting rights movement, we also, as young organizers and activists, wanted to continue to work in that legacy. So for a number of years, we've been doing voter work. But in 2016, we felt like it was really critical that we engage communities at the local level, that part of what we see and we think that will strengthen democracy in this country is being able to build the capacity of community-led organizations on the local level. And so we are working in 11 states where we support Black-led grassroots groups in those states. We're working with 150 to 200 organizations at all times. We help build their capacity by investing in them, working as strategic partners, and providing tools and resources, and also in terms of how we look at culture and using that in a narrative about who Black voters are and our power and how ultimately we want to advance democracy and open up the process for free and fair elections for all of us. 
Latasha, I want to talk about Georgia's primary in June. You were one of many voters in Atlanta who waited several hours to cast an in-person ballot. How did your experience compare with what took place at polling stations in predominantly white neighborhoods? You know, it was night and day. I went to the, I got up early that morning, went to my polling site. I waited in line for three hours. It was actually really nerve wracking because in light of COVID-19, to stand in line that long, that was the first time I had actually gone out in the public in that way. And standing in line, I had all kinds of concerns around that. Um, it took about three hours to vote. And then we were actually going on um, the north side of town, which is predominantly 98% uh, white polling place. And I get there to assist a voter, um, a high profile voter that wanted us to, to, to accompany them. And there was no line, there was no wait, there was was no, you know, it was just like seamless. And then we found out uh, we got another phone call from another polling site um, was a majority white uh, polling site. No problems whatsoever in and out voters. However, once leaving that site, I go back to the south side in Metro um, in, in Atlanta. And at this polling site, which was Adams Park, people had been in line at this point. It's 1 p.m. People had been standing in line for over five hours that ultimately even the machines had not been online at 12 o'clock un until 12 o'clock that day. And so what we saw is a major difference between what was happening in predominantly white polling sites and what was happening in predominantly black polling sites. And I myself actually experienced that even later that evening. After 10.30 p.m., I get a phone call that there were 300 African-American voters waiting at a polling site. And so it was up. And so we went out, my organization, other organizations, like Georgia Project, ACLU and others, we went out to really be able to comfort and, and boost the morale of the voters that were standing out there um, and really just talk. And we, we gave them pizza and water. The last voter, where we were in Union City, the last voter actually voted on Wednesday because technically it was 1237 when we were at that polling site. So it was just a major difference in the voting experience that we saw in predominantly African-American polling places and what we saw in white polling places in the metro Atlanta area. It really sounds like such a stark contrast. We only have a couple minutes left, but what is the Black Voters Matter Fund doing to prevent what happened in Georgia in June from happening nationwide in November? So we're doing a couple of things. So one, we're working in 11 states deeply and 15 um, uh, more broadly, but we're doing a lot of voter education. We think it's really important. There's a lot of information, misinformation. And because of COVID-19, people have to vote differently. So you've got to, we've got mail-in ballots and absentee ballots. So one, we're doing a lot of voter education. Secondly, we're also monitoring and really making sure that we're uh, recruiting people to vote as poll workers to work at the polls, also as poll monitors. And we're working even with some of our legal partners like ACLU, where we actually have filed a lawsuit against the state of Georgia around postage. And then the third, uh, um, the fourth and the final thing is we're organizing. We're organizing those grassroots groups to actually be on the front line to really get people to vote early, get people to get the right and correct information and also monitor the process and be able to document as people have problems. All right, Latasha Brown for us. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for watching this special edition of Red and Blue Countdown to the Vote. You can stream it again at midnight Eastern. And a reminder, you can watch Red and Blue Monday through Thursday at 5 and 9 p.m. Eastern. We're back after a break. You're streaming CBSN, CBS News, always on.
the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.